This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Last Friday, a bill that would ban transgender athletes from competing in middle, high school, and college sports passed in the West Virginia legislature. At least 20 different state legislatures have introduced transgender athlete bans in 2021. While South Dakota's Governor Kristi Noem vetoed a proposed ban, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi have signed these changes into law. Arkansas's Governor Asa Hutchinson did, however, veto legislation that would have banned gender-confirming treatments or sex reassignment surgery for transgender youth under 18. That bill would have been the first in the country to ban this practice. Meanwhile, last Monday, GOP legislators in North Carolina introduced a bill that would prevent doctors from performing sex reassignment surgery for transgender people under the age of 21. This flurry of state bills month ago, an LGBT advocacy group human rights campaign had counted more than 80, has once again provoked impassioned fighting, much of it centered around children. It's led to questions of fairness in youth sports, if adolescent judgment and diagnosis should be trusted, and what role and what say parents should have in how their children express their gender. We wanted to look at this issue with special attention to the family. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted. Some weeks I feel like it's a little bit hard to what we're going to be reacting to this week is kind of <laughs> a lot. So how, what is your gut check? How are you processing right. all of this? Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot going on on transgender issues. For me, it is certainly an issue as editorial director at Christianity Day uh, to help our readers, to help pastors, to help different kinds of uh, Christian leaders address this well. It is also definitely not an issue for me. It is also where I'm talking about very specific people in my life, family and friends, who are at different places on gender dysphoria. Some who identify as as trans and some who do not. Loving well is a very important, yeah, it's really important. I mean, yeah. And I think for me, walking through a lot of these conversations has been about not confusing these issues with the issues on same-sex attraction. They're very similar, but they're also very different. You can't just map one conversation onto the other conversation. And I think part of that is having some helpful vocabulary to talk about these things and also really not abstracting it so much that you lose the person <laughs> that you are loving while still being clear to, you know, I mean, what how we're supposed to love. That I think, you know, the way in which sexuality is talked about in the broader culture is really different than the way the Bible talks about identity and, and sexuality. That to me is where is where it comes down. Yeah, Morgan, you and I have talked a lot about the number of the Bible verses that talk about breaking fellowship and that talk about when when and with whom do you break do you break fellowship? Lines like, you know, have nothing to do with such people who are the 
such people that Paul is talking about in those verses. For me, recognizing how often we as evangelicals jump to have nothing to do with such people on sexuality and how slow we are to have that response on people who are divisive and people who are trying to cause dissent and people who are looking for a fight. We listen too much to the people who want to fight. We just do. And we don't listen enough to the people who want to teach us how to bring people to Jesus. <laughs> and that's not squishy. Like I, you know, more and the more I, you know, engage with my Bible, the more I listen to wise Christian leaders, the more I read in Christian history, the less squishy it is for me to say, bring people to Jesus and cut off people who just are spoiling for a fight. That's where I am. I, wanting very much to not add or take away from anything the Bible says about identity and sexuality. Say like, all right, if someone is struggling with gender dysphoria, how do we love them? And how do we bring that gender dysphoria to Jesus? These are not easy answers. And also it is not a one single answer, you know, because no one's struggling in the same way. You know, you can't just say, oh, I, I, I know one person with gender dysphoria. So I know what all the gender dysphoria questions are about. Like, nope, that's not exactly how all of this works. Morgan, how about you? Yeah, so I mentioned a couple minutes ago that there have been more than 80 pieces of legislation related to transgender issues that have been introduced in state legislatures this year. And that is a lot. (laughs) And yeah, I think there are some times where I wish Americans did resort to, you know, laws more often. I think we've talked about different religious freedom things on this podcast, for instance, this was like maybe a month ago, that is an issue that I think is decided in court. And I would love it if people went to the legislature more to wrestle with those issues. But in this one, I have a frustration with what I think is actually an interpersonal problem becoming a political problem. And that so many of these things are about trying to make it so people don't know have to have to negotiate and grapple with the challenges of interpersonal relationships by kicking it off to the legal system, our legal system, legislative system, to our bills and laws. That to me seems a little bit lazy in many ways, but also uh, there's a really huge human cost. And that is obviously borne by families and children and young people who are asking all these questions and grappling with all of these things. And I also think that it's really been, in many ways, not helped us have better conversations about this or understand anything ourselves. I really wanted to do this podcast today because I wanted to talk about what this looks like at a much more interpersonal level and how I think that we're using these laws to not actually sit with those other things that might be even more convicting to us. Yeah, and it is interesting to see it's the war of laws on on both sides because you know you mentioned a number of the laws kind of limiting you know some of the gender confirming you know the, the Arkansas bill and that kind of thing, but in South Dakota, Tennessee, Arkansas, but you know we we also had a podcast recently about the Equality Act that actually would kind of guarantee and also limit the ability of physicians to not perform gender confirming treatment. So there's like a, there's a hard left and a hard right. I hate that binary, but there's a, there's a side that is looking to kind of um, almost market transgenderism. And then there's a 
a side that is just kind of wanting to say, oh, you know, if you have gender dysphoria, don't tell me about it. Just, you know, suffer in silence. Both sides resorting to kind of legal bans is is very frustrating for sure. All right, Ted, can you tell us who our guest is to weigh in on all of these complicated subjects today? Yes, our guest is a name that regular CT readers should be very familiar with, Mark Yarhouse. Uh, you may remember his 2015 article for us, Understanding the Transgender Phenomenon. He's also the director of the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute. And his books, he has many books, uh, but they include Understanding Gender Dysphoria and most recently, Emerging Gender Identities. So Mark, thanks for all your help over the years with us at Christianity Today on some of these issues. Thanks for doing Quick to Listen today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Mark, I have been at CT for a number of years now, and I kind of think that this issue is something that I saw gain national attention around when I got here. I was thinking yesterday about Caitlyn Jenner and how her transition six years ago sparked a lot of debate. And a year later, we had the North Carolina bathroom bill that also sparked a lot of political and corporate backlash to the state as well. What is the same about where this conversation was five or six years ago and what has changed? I think the conversation around gender has become more pronounced, more centered into the cultural discussions. You're seeing an increase in the number of people who identify as transgender or what I refer to as emerging gender identities. And so there's much more of a splintering of gender categories into different experiences, different language for describing people's experiences. I think that has been a shift in the last five years, six years. I think things have become more polarized as well, culturally. You saw that, I think, with the reaction to some of the legislation like the bathroom bill, but you see that now with the law passed in Alabama and something like 20 other states might be considering similar legislation. Now, contrast that with the 20 or more states that have have gender identity change effort laws in place for minors to keep that from happening. I think you're just seeing an increase on both sides of a very divisive topic. So you mentioned a couple different things. One is legal temperature has changed, but you also said that the conversation itself has changed and people's propensity to identify in what you're calling emerging gender identities. Per this last point, what's up with that? What has changed there and what has kind of led to this development? Well, you know, when I wrote my that first book on understanding gender dysphoria, I was really just trying to introduce evangelical Christians to the concept of transgender experiences, gender dysphoria, this experience that's distressing when a person's gender identity doesn't align with their biological sex. When I talk about emerging gender identities, I think it's beyond that kind of basic framework, if you will, of transgender, but you have you know, different experiences today of young people saying that they're gender expansive, they're gender creative, they're bi-gender, they're pan-gender, the different identifiers kind of go from there. And I'm, I'm not saying that to be particularly critical of that. I think just to be, help us as Christians be thoughtful in how we engage a culture that's shifted so dramatically and where language has been uh, shifting. You're interacting now with younger people for whom these are kind of taken for granted realities. Uh, the generation that went before them had a very limited scope of categories and language. And so I think there's a high likelihood of us misunderstanding and talking past one another. The term non-binary is something that I've seen also on the increase as well. Is there a way that you would define 
that? And are there any other terms that you think, you know, people who are kind of feeling like they're more on the outside of the conversation, but still should know some basic vocabulary in here should be familiar with? Someone says they're gender non-binary. It's a little bit of an umbrella term for many different experiences. So I tend to ask the person. I might say that I've, I've heard other people use that to describe themselves. My sense is that people have meant different things by that. I'm wondering how, you know, what that has meant to you. And I might just open it up for that conversation. But ordinarily, it's a, it's kind of an umbrella term for people whose experience of their gender is kind of outside of the binary of man, woman, or boy, girl. And so they use gender non-binary kind of like they use gender queer as kind of a catch-all for what that could mean to them. And so it's, I know it's a little hard to define, but that those are, that's kind of the common definition of it. The lessons that we, you know, tried to learn five or six or seven years ago about transgender issues, do those still map on some of the non-binary or some of the new, you know, as you say, the the emerging gender identities is the way to kind of help understand transgenderism similar when you talk about folks being, you know, bi-gender or non-conforming or whatever, whatever some of the new words might be? I think some of the lessons learned will map on to that. It's challenging to know exactly how to, as Christians, how to enter into this conversation because we have had norms around sexuality and gender that we want to be able to articulate. But sometimes when we articulate those norms, we can do it in ways that seem to cast doubt on the experience of other people around us who don't use those same norms as anchor points that we do. And then it ends up becoming more of a risk of speaking past each other or kind of being kind of entrenched in no, but you're not understanding you know, my claim. My claim is this. So I think you can both teach norms around sexuality and gender and recognize that there's exceptions to those that are, I think, likely the result of the fallen world in which we live and some of the challenges that people face in that space. There's also clinical differences and issues from maybe a classic transgender presentation and some of the emerging gender identities. And we can talk about some of how that's different and how people might counsel differently and different options available to people. But there's a host of challenges here. Is it helpful to try to start with commonality? I'm thinking about an editorial we ran a number of years ago at Christianity, as we were talking about at the time, the kind of lengthening letters on kind of the LGBTQIA+. One of the things that editorial talked about was the notion of of queer sexuality and saying you know there's a sense in which we are all queer we are all we all have ways in which we do not conform to some sort of platonic ideal there are ways in which we have broken sexualities there are ways in which we don't conform to both cultural or or even biblical notions of what it means to be male or female. Since we've run that editorial, there are ways in which I, I have found that helpful, but there's also times in which I wonder if that kind of level of seeking common ground may obscure or be an area of talking past each other. I'm curious where you are on that, just in terms of like starting conversation. Do we Is it helpful to start conversations talking about ways in which we also have 
you know, dysphoria in different ways or, or queerness in different ways? There's an upside and a downside to that. I think Christians would hold that we have so much in common as we bear the image of God and we, we start there. People are beloved by God, that God wants a relationship with people. And so there's, there's so much in that sense that is a starting point for shared, you know, human experience. But, you know, you're right. If you overplay that, you look past the ways in which some people's experience is kind of so far on the margins that you might not fully appreciate the challenges that they're facing, particularly when it is a dysphoria, when it's painful experience that you've never experienced. That might be difficult when people say, this is how this has been for me. And there's people saying that this is just willful disobedience on your part. We're just not speaking the same terms here about a people's experience. Well, let's talk about terms then. Mark, how are you defining gender dysphoria? And do you use that interchangeably with the idea of transgenderism? So gender dysphoria is that discomfort or distress that's connected to or associated with the lack of concordance between someone's biological sex, usually thought of in terms of chromosomes and genitalia and gonads, and the person's gender identity, their experience of themselves as a man or a woman or a different gender identity than that. And so when that's distressing to them, it's a dysphoria versus like a euphoria, positive emotional state. It's a negative emotional state. And I don't think of that as synonymous with transgender, but many people who would identify as transgender would report gender dysphoria. And it it can vary in severity from rather mild to pretty severe. And it can ebb and flow in severity in a person's life. That's kind of the basic understanding that. Is it especially around adolescence? I mean, you know, a lot of these conversations focus on adolescence, but when you talk about ebbing and flowing, is that especially true in, in the adolescent years or is it, or is it just that that's where the conversation is focusing now? Well, this goes back to a question Morgan asked about what's changed in the last six years. And I would say historically, gender dysphoria was thought of as more typically having an early onset. So a boy or a girl is aware of their gender between ages two and four. Just developmentally, they're aware that they're a boy or a girl, or they're going to express a different experience than that. What we've seen in the last six years has been a remarkable increase in the number of cases that we would call late onset. So that means at or after puberty, the person is reporting this kind of gender dysphoria that they didn't appear to have much evidence of if all at all, in childhood. And that's what's concerning to a number of mental health professionals and others, because you see this documented in specialty clinics like in the UK, in the Netherlands, throughout the United States. And there's not really been a satisfying explanation that accounts for that increase. Just to clarify, prior to the last five or six years, folks that were saying, I'm trans most likely started feeling those feelings well before puberty? Yeah, most of the cases had been what we would call early onset, so pretty young age. And parents would wonder what was going on. They would wonder if their child, if it was a phase their child was going through, or they would probably go to a specialty clinic when that child turned six or seven, maybe when they were going to preschool or kindergarten, when the comparison would be their peer group rather than just kind of at home with their family. That would be the more typical presentation historically, and it was more often 
biological males rather than females at about a maybe a four or five to one ratio that would be referred to these specialty clinics. And that was probably the result of having a narrower kind of box for what a boy can be like. And if they're outside of that expectation, then it raises more flags for parents, whereas girls can have a little more latitude in how they present. And if they're maybe gender atypical in some ways, you know, you have positive language for that. They could be tomboyish and no one's really going to be particularly concerned. So I think that probably accounted for a bit of that ratio. But now you're seeing quite a flip. Now we're seeing not just the late onset cases at a higher rate, but you're also seeing it among biological females at a higher rate than you do males. And so, again, we don't really understand what's going on with that switch that I'm reporting. Another question just to clarify on this, how do you mark the distinction between someone who expresses themselves outside cultural understandings of what masculinity or femininity look like versus someone who actually feels uncomfortable being a particular gender? So that's actually a rule out when you when you meet with somebody to make a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. You actually rule out that they're just within the range of what boys or girls or a man or a woman would be like, but they're just maybe have different characteristics, different presentation, different ways of kind of having different interests and things like that that are maybe gender atypical. They don't fit into maybe stereotypes we have about a boy or a girl, but they're not gender dysphoria. So how do you make that distinction? Well, it's it's there's a several things that go into that, but once you can talk to the person, they're you know an adult and you can have a conversation with them, they're telling you, I experience myself as a woman, I experience myself in this way. It's a little bit harder when you're trying to make that determination with with a child who might not be able to sort of pull all that together. There's certain criteria that you follow for that. It's around their what they're able to say about their gender identity. It's usually their response to secondary sex characteristic, primary sex characteristics. It's the desire for the sex characteristics of the other gender. And these things aren't like for a few weeks or a few months. You know, it's it's over time and it's pretty significant. It's pretty significant in their their body image, their how they experience themselves and see themselves. And it's pretty distressing to them. There's a lot of different pieces that go into that criteria for making that kind of diagnosis. We're talking right now, again, about young people in particular and this experience. What type of advice are you, would you give to adults who are listening to this podcast and have recently learned that a young person that is in their life believes that they are trans? This is something that I've, I want to really encourage Christians that we, we typically have this skill set. We just are used to applying it to other groups of people whose individual characteristics are different than our own. So think, for example, of your neighbor who's agnostic. You know, we don't really seem to have a lot of difficulty just relating to them, even though their individual characteristics around their religious identity is different than ours. Like we have a sense for how to relate to that person or someone who's different in terms of different racial background or cultural background, ethnic background, age, so when people's a, a different individual characteristics vary from ours, we have the capacity to relate to them, to talk with them, to recognize God's love for them, to value them as a person, to encourage them to bring kind of all of their experiences into the relationship that we're forming with them as an acquaintance and maybe a friendship. 
you sort of use the same skill set here. It's, it doesn't have to be more difficult. Well, the reason I just bring up adolescence, I think, is that oftentimes adults do feel like they have to say something for to prevent kids from going down the wrong way or to make sure that they're not being misled or there's a sense of moral responsibility, right, that adults may have that maybe they don't have as strongly when it comes to adults or their fellow peers. It would depend a lot on the relationship you have with that adolescent. You know, I don't normally speak into the lives of adolescents around me unless I have a relationship with them and I'm sort of invited into that space. I think it would run pretty significant risk of me kind of overstepping the nature of the relationship I have with them and then likely speaking past them. And then what they may know about me is that I'm a Christian who's now my witness to them is that I have this kind of top-down approach where I'm telling them that they're at risk or they're doing something wrong. And I think that sort of plays into that narrative that Christians sometimes have around this issue. So I would probably take the position more with an adolescent even that I do know as a neighbor or you know, as a family friend or something like that, just to listen a little bit more about what their experience has been like. Remember that they're navigating at their age and their generation a lot more categories for language and linguistic constructs around gender and sexuality than my generation did. And so they're probably deeply shaped by what's been made available to them and they're interacting with those categories and they're making sense to them. Now, they might not make sense to me and I might have a reaction to that, but it would be better to understand how the language functions for an adolescent rather than begin with the place that they're wrong or that they need to be corrected. I think that kind of disputational strategy does not work with adolescents, period. And I don't think it works in this conversation because our connection to their language has been so different and they've been exposed to so many different categories. I'm curious how you counsel folks on those basic questions of name and identity when someone is in an initial mode of it. So not necessarily surgery or hormonal treatment, but just saying like, you know, I think uh, identifies a different gender and please refer to me as a different name. Is your counsel for friends, extended family, just, yep, go for it. Or is there a conversation? I've always said in, in my, in my writing that if, if a person is able to live in a way that refers that reflects their birth sex, I think they're going to have, in some ways, if they're able to do that, it's going to be less complicated on a number of fronts because in terms of what it could look like to transition or to make that request in terms of name and pronoun or to consider medical interventions that would be lifelong. There's, there's so many layers of complexity. And then are there moral issues with that? And there's a, there's a lot of layers that come into that. But some people, like you said, they're in this place where they're considering a social transition or a partial social transition. They're trying on maybe different name and pronouns. I have to look at it a little bit on a case-by-case basis. If the person's trying to do that because they've been suffering from gender dysphoria and it's been distressing to them, and they've used other strategies to sort of manage that, like the clothing that they wear and the way they keep their hair, and and, and these things have taken sort of the edge off that dysphoria and been helpful to them, but it's sufficiently distressing that they think that using pronouns that they would prefer might be helpful to them. Like, I'd like to understand a little bit about what's behind the request and help me understand how it's, again, functioning for them. Then just take it as, in principle, I would never do that because it would go against you know what I believe to be true. I don't know that it, it might not be helpful to them. That's, that's not an uncommon 
strategy that people use. And people uh, on this topic, they try to use these strategies usually in a trial and error way and kind of a stepwise fashion. They do it through using things that they can always reverse and go back to their original pronouns. They can always do that. I think they're trying to sort of figure this out. And so I don't want to be overly reactive to that. I want to sort of meet them where they are. I want to have a sustained relationship with them. And I've often shared that I generally, I err on the side of hospitality towards somebody here to be in a relationship with them rather than do things on the front end that would kind of sever the tie that they might otherwise want to have with me. And so I try to be thoughtful about that as well. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcasts on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I imagine that for parents who may be learning about this or learning that their child is experiencing the world this way, there might be this sense of, well, I know my child and my child is not like this or does not experience the world this way and thus a reluctance to legitimize something that they may believe to be false. What type of advice do you have for parents as they try to understand where their child is coming from? And Morgan, this goes right back to the question about what's changed in the last five or six years. And, the, and that remarkable increase in late onset cases has made your question that much more challenging to answer because when you have early onset, parents are not that surprised when a child says to them, I'm transgender or I experience my gender identity differently than than most people do or however they frame it. Parents knew something was going on. They just didn't have language for it. But when you have late onset cases, it is blindsiding to the parents and parents feel very much like their world has been rocked and there's no reference point for what their teenager is saying. There's no history 
or very little history to understand it. That's where I think your question is really difficult. What should a parent do with that kind of a situation? I think you want to figure out if, is this gender dysphoria? Is this what's happening here? There has been some concern that there might be teens who have other issues going on in their life and they're finding a sense of identity and community in something that has such social salience today. It's moved kind of to the center of some of the cultural discourse around sexuality and gender, whereas some time ago being being gay had sort of occupied that space. The transgender conversation has kind of moved into that space culturally. Maybe a generation ago, a young person might have landed in a different area and explored different aspects of themselves. But today, this has the kind of salience that might be appealing to some people where they They might not actually have gender dysphoria. There may be other things going on, and they're finding something in this space. Now, I want to be careful when I say that because I don't think that's most of what I'm seeing in my clinic. I think that can happen, and I think some people have been trying to research that as a possible phenomenon. Is that something that is trending among adolescents and we should be cautious about? So I, I sort of want parents to be wise and discerning. To, to check things out with a provi- uh, someone who has expertise in this area, but to realize there could be multiple things going on here, and it would take quite a bit of discernment and time to figure out what's going on. We have talked about some of the different ways that this this map, you know, that we that things are changing. If, as you've talked to parents and and extend and also friends and extended family, I think, are there important ways that we should? differentiate the conversation about dysphoria and transgender issues from the conversation about same-sex attraction and and gay and lesbian issues? They are different experiences. When someone describes themselves as gay, they're talking about their attractions towards the same sex and their orientation towards the same sex. And when someone says that they're transgender, they're talking about their experience of their gender identity as a man or a woman or a different gender identity than that. And so gender identity doesn't have to do with who you're physically, emotionally, sexually attracted to. In fact, a lot of times when people are trying to, they're they're wrestling with this dysphoria, they're often being asked about their sexual orientation. They often, you know, that's a confusing topic for some people. They're not sure where, what they could even say about that. They're really trying to figure out what's going on around gender. I think sometimes Christians are a little bit more preoccupied with like, but what about sexual behavior? What's that going to look like? What does that look like? And I, I don't think that's where a lot of people are when they're figuring out gender. That's it's a different thing for them. I think distinguishing that is helpful. I think some Christians see that scripture speaks more to the question around sexual behavior than it does to gender identity. And I think that complicates this conversation a little bit more. It's not that scripture doesn't say anything about these topics, but it doesn't have the sort of, you think of certain passages that stand out to you around sexual behavior. You don't have that sort of same clustering of passages you have around gender. It doesn't mean the scripture doesn't speak at all to questions around creation, the fall, redemption, glorification, and how that might be applied to this topic. But I think they're different in that way. It's not quite as clear if you're looking for direct scriptural passages. When we were talking about the news related to this, we mentioned surgery 
and that has been something that has been the focus of a number of these bills that has been introduced, and I think it really elicits a lot of strong reactions on both sides of this conversation. What do you find often gets missed in these conversations that you would want to educate our listeners on? Maybe you can talk about there's a difference between adolescents having surgery versus adults having surgery, and what type of effect do you imagine a ban on surgery for young people to have? What I'm seeing is like bans on medical procedures, and I think there's a number of things that minors might consider that uh, like uh, whether to block going through puberty is one intervention that people consider. And then that's right at the beginning of the development of puberty. And then young people then might consider using cross-sex hormones at some point, uh, maybe a, a year or two later, if they did the puberty blocking intervention. And then I think that that becomes a consideration. And I think some of the legislation may be looking at that. And then there are surgical procedures as well. So, I mean, part of it is people who are concerned about that. Well, let me say this. I think on both sides of this the cultural debate, people have young people's best interest in heart. They're, they're both trying to address vulnerable young people that they're concerned about, but they're landing in very diametrically opposed places to express their concern for young people. And I think those who are saying we shouldn't allow these types of procedures are saying young people don't have the capacity to make these kinds of decisions, to understand the consequences of these decisions and what that could mean for them five years out, 10 years out, what the consequences would be for this. And other people believe that young people are at great risk and that these are the kinds of things that medical and psychiatric providers think should be on the table and considered for a young person who people sign off as thinking that they have the ability to make that decision and that this might be helpful to them. When we're talking about consequences, what are some of the consequences that some of the people proposing these bans are concerned about? And to what extent do you think that these are valid versus, you know, have been kind of framed in an overly partisan or over-exaggeration? With the use of cross-sex hormones, for example, this would be a lifelong regimen that a young person would have to take to have the clinical effects of using the other, uh, the hormones of the other sex. If you stop taking the hormone, you stop having that clinical benefit. And we just don't have the kind of long-term research on the effects of using cross-sex hormones with an adolescent over 30 years or something like that. You just don't have that kind of research in place. And so that's the concern. Probably the greatest risk there would be the risk for sterility. That's another topic that people who are concerned about it from that point of view would say, I don't know that a a young person at 16 or 17 understands what that would mean in 10 years. Like, do they really understand the risk that they're taking there? So there's there's conversations like that that I think end up that where people probably backing that kind of legislation are concerned. Now, I would say people often ask me what I think just of legislation in this area. I'm actually not a fan of legislating around these complex clinical issues I, on either side. So when people talked about the number of the states that have gender identity change effort bans, and you have a number of the states that are proposing this legislation in this direction to ban medical procedures. I think once you're moving towards legislation on either side of these complex issues, ultimately, I think it ends up not 
being nimble enough to respond to the needs of the next person in front of you. And I'd love for those needs to be met more by the mental health profession and the people who are working with them and those that regulate the mental health professions. That's where typically complaints would be adjudicated. It would be through the people who are licensing the providers to provide services rather than through legislation that kind of creates a a statement for, that's applied to everybody across the board. I think that just doesn't end up being as flexible and nimble as, as we would need. Well, one of the pieces that we've seen legislation, right, has been in school districts that are trying to ban trans girls and women from playing from playing in youth and collegiate sports. Have you seen any examples of school districts figure this one out without <laughs> people immediately resorting to laws? Well, I haven't really tracked a lot of this as closely. I think that we need a little bit more time to research how to measure advantage here and what that looks like. Again, when you develop a policy, and I know like the NCAA has tried to has been looking into this and looking at the length of time to be on hormones or there's good intention there to try to figure that out. We just probably need some more time and more research and looking at what gives someone a competitive advantage and how do you safeguard that without excluding people from being able to compete when this is what they have trained to do and they're good at this and you want to give them the opportunity to to do this. And there's been controversies, I think, at every level of competition. This is not going to be something that's going to be resolved quickly. But I think that there hasn't been enough work done really clarifying what those standards would need to be across the board. And maybe they need to be applied more on a case-by-case basis than having a, a one length of time that's applied to everybody. And I, I just wonder if it's more complicated than it's been made out to be. I'm curious about different stories that I've seen in the media of people who have transitioned, who later transition back. And I'm not sure if that's the language that gets used here. Is that something that is common? Is, you know, I, I've seen a lot of just distrust of reporters or media organizations that's like leveled at some of the folks who are talking about people who end up regretting their transitions. And in some ways, maybe they insinuate that those stories kind of undermine some of these other narratives of people who are who are trans. How should we best understand those narratives and what type of attention should they get? Sometimes this is referred to as detransitioning. And I would say I know I know some people who have said that they've detransitioned as well. I've seen it as more anecdotal. I haven't seen a very well-designed study that would show us how common that is. I do know that in the Netherlands, they recently published a report of something like 30 years of people using different interventions, including surgical procedures, and the rate of regret was really low, uh, continues to be low. So I don't think that you're seeing a dramatic rise in regret that would typically correspond with detransitioning, or it could anyway. You could you could have regrets about surgery and elect not to detransition. But I suspect we need to study that a little bit more to see how common that is. But based on the rates of regret that were published more recently, I don't see a rise in that. I am a little concerned that we could see a rise in that for the reasons that I've talked about. These atypical presentations, these late onset presentations, the, the gender ratio flip, towards more cases of female adolescents with later onset. Where will they be in five or 10 years? I, we don't know yet, but if they were all to make 
or many were to make medical transitions. And, and most actually don't make medical transitions at this point, but if they were to, would we see a rise in regret? That's what I'd be curious. And I, I would be concerned about that possibility. I'm curious about how you encourage people to pray for friends and family who are both ex- experiencing gender dysphoria or who have kind of concluded that some sort of transitioning or you know either social presentation but someone who's who has expressed some degree of saying I do not feel comfortable with the gender that you think I am how do you recommend that we pray for those folks for God to continue if if he's already been speaking to them but continue to speak to them to speak to me to give me guidance to help me know best how to see the person to love this person that they would know that they are loved by God, for them to have wisdom and discernment moving forward, for me to have wisdom and discernment in how I relate to them as someone that God cares deeply about. Those are the types of prayers that I pray. I also provide, like when I'm in ministry to somebody outside of my role as a psychologist, I tend to pray more in that way. I think that's been helpful to me in kind of walking with people. And keep in mind that I was, maybe I should have followed up my last answer with this, but I I mentioned that most people don't make a medical transition at this point. In the last transgender survey, U.S. transgender survey, about 44% of something like 26,000 transgender persons had indicated that they had were using hormone treatment, and only about 25% had used any type of gender confirmation surgery. So that's been a helpful conversation to have too, and to have that in my back of my mind. Mark, you have talked about multiple times, again, this big change that we've seen in the past five years. I just wondered if we could just go into that a little bit more deeply and hear maybe other things that have happened in our culture, any notes that we know about Gen Z and kind of how they're experiencing their adolescent period. And yeah, some of the different hypotheses people have raised about what seems to be happening now. Part of what I say in emerging gender identities is that there's there's kind of two competing theories for what might be going on right now that the younger generation is is navigating. And one is, I would say the more common explanation of this rise in cases that are atypical is kind of a self-awareness model, meaning that these young people have always been there and they just now have the language and the categories for naming, kind of naming their reality, that this is who they are as a gender diverse person. And I would say that probably does account for some of the increase. I mean, I've certainly met with people in their 50s and older who would have loved to have been an adolescent today because they didn't understand what was happening in terms of their gender identity. I remember one person, you know, was scouring, going through a medical library, just scouring textbooks to try to understand because they thought that maybe they were suffering from psychosis of some kind. Maybe they were schizophrenic. And they landed on what at that time was the designation for today, what we call gender dysphoria. It brought a, a sigh of relief that there was a this was a real phenomenon. This was a real documented thing. And I think that person, you know, in their 50s would have would have liked to have grown up at a time where they would have understood better what was going on. So I think self-awareness as a model probably does account for some, but I think it's a little naive. I, I don't think it really accounts for all of what's happening culturally. And I'd say that the other 
competing explanation comes more from critics who have called it kind of a, a social contagion model where they see it as almost like a virus that's catching among adolescents who have as their peer group other transgender people. This is probably the, the one study that's really tried to look at this was one, done by Lisa Littman a few years, a couple of years ago, like 2018. And she kind of introduced some of this language It was criticized by a number of people, particularly within the transgender community, as detracting from the reality of gender dysphoria and transgender experiences. And I don't tend to use the word social contagion because I think it's antagonistic in this context, but I do give Dr. Lippman credit because she was trying to study something that all of us realize is happening. We see this remarkable increase and we're trying to wrap our minds around it. It's it's definitely a hallway conversation among professionals. And so she tried to study it. And I think there are legitimate concerns with her methodology. Every study has legitimate methodological limitations. I'd like to see our field study this more because probably the truth has elements of both of these things, but maybe more complicated. I actually introduced a different theory. It's It's from Ian Hacking called a looping effect that I think it goes back to some of what I shared with you and Ted earlier that I think young people, when they're categorized using categories like gender dysphoria, they end up relating to the way that they're categorized and the language that's used there. And there's new terminology available to them and the splintering off of different gender categories. And you have as a society, people interacting with new, new categories. And it kind of loops back around in terms of what is becomes kind of taken for granted understandings around gender and sexuality, and then experts chime in on what counts as real knowledge and how we understand this. And it goes into new diagnostic categories and people interact with those categories. And I think this kind of looping that happens over time probably accounts too for some of what the changes that we're seeing in our society today. You have spent years working to build trust and rapport with the trans community. We've talked about this in different ways throughout the show, but if you were supposed if you were going to just give one or two pieces of concrete advice about actually building trust here, not just building relationship, right? What advice would you share with our listeners who are trying to do the same? One distinction that we make in emerging gender identities is we make a distinction in different areas of ministry that for some people, they're going to be called to address this more at a political identity level others at a public identity level, and others at a private identity level. So let me explain those three. Most of us aren't called to do all three of these things, but it's not that common that you'll be interacting with like an activist where the gender identity question is at the level of a political identity. You'll you know put someone advancing certain more activist agendas uh, around these issues. And I would say when I interact with people like that, I try to remember that Underneath every assertive advocate was at one time someone who was sincerely struggling in this part of their life. And I might not agree with all of the ways in which they resolved it, but I'm going to try to speak to that person underneath that assertive advocate and see if there's opportunities to connect with that person in a relationship that's that's meaningful and sustained. That's political identity. The second one is a public identity. This is your neighbor. This is the person delivering your pizza. This is the person bagging groceries at the grocery store. This is a, you know, this is an extended family member. You know, this person is just trying to live their life. 
And this is an individual demographic characteristic that is part of their life. I think there you want to work on kind of meeting them where they are, acts of hospitality, relate to them the way you relate to other people whose individual characteristic is different than ones you're familiar with. I tend to respond using their preferred name and pronouns to build the kind of relationship that I would have. Because my point of reference and theirs would be so different at this point that I think it would be rather insulting and and burn the bridges that I would be trying to create at this point in a relationship with them. And then the third is I call it a private identity. And this is the, this is the person who is distressed and they're coming to you for ministry. They're coming to you for counsel. Keep in mind that that's not most people, right? Most people are not asking for that help. They're, they've kind of figured this out. They're working this out. They're your neighbor. And they're just trying to have a good quality of life like anybody else. But the person who's coming to you and saying, I need help with this, then I think you are also with them praying for the best way forward. You know, what do you do with this gender dysphoria? What are the ways to manage it? How can you be a source of encouragement and support as they're facing some really tough decisions about the best way to respond to that dysphoria? All right. Thank you, Mark, so much for sharing with us. I probably could ask you questions for two more hours. So I appreciate you taking this time (laughs) to talk to us. People who have reactions, responses, and comments, you can send us an email. We are at podcasts at christianneedtoday.com. Podcast with an S. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time for our segment, so to speak, which is when we get to hear from our listeners. And we have some good letters this week. Ted? I'm going to start with this first letter from Jenna Nelson in Omaha responding to last week's podcast about online church in the pandemic. I disagree that there's very much about the sermon in the, quote, typical church format that changes if you're online or in person. It's still a distant person talking to you. It's not a conversation. And I've enjoyed some aspects of the online sermon. For example, it's allowed me to hear from a larger variety of speakers. It gives me the ability to pause a sermon, research a passage further, and then resume. I absolutely agree that there's no replacing corporate worship, but I disagree that the sermon cannot be augmented by technology. I would also say that sometimes the convenience of online church is not inherently wrong. For example, as a parent of young children, I've been able to interact with more Zoom small groups than I would have otherwise been able to, and I've had more and deeper community through the pandemic than I ever have. Although there are irreplaceable aspects of in-person Christian community, I don't think that meeting in person should be the idol we have held it up to be. Yeah, thanks, Jenna. A lot of uh, a lot of interesting points there. Good points about what Zoom allows. It'll be interesting to see how much of these things continue as we move on. Yeah, I thought the pausing point was a really interesting one. <laughs> yeah, it is. It you know this that is an interesting thing that my church has done. My church has said you know if we are not going to be able to meet in the same space, we will still meet at the same time. So our Zoom services are all still very much live, live sermon, live live music for the most part. We've made a few accommodations to that. I've often wondered about like how important is it to inhabit the same time if we can't inhabit the same space? Because pause, you know, I do other things. I, I actually, my morning devotion I do on a podcast and I, I pause. In fact, I, it's built in uh, that during the time of praying for other people that you are, you kind of pause the podcast and, and pray and then hit pause again and resume once you're done kind of doing your 
intercessory prayer. I appreciate that. But I do really love my Wednesday morning morning prayer that is live and over Zoom. And that's so much better than, than my podcast morning prayer. So, All right. This is from Kathleen Lewis. One possibility that having services online has opened up for some of us is the possibility of attending more than one church's Sunday service. I attend my own church's service live. We post amens and hallelujahs in the comments. But I also usually attend at least one more. So I can, quote, visit a church I used to be a part of when I lived in a different place. Or I can sing along with a different style of music. This doesn't decrease my love for my own church. This is a married person needs other friends as well as their spouse. So other churches can meet needs that my own church doesn't. I hope that even once I'm back in person at my own church, these options for visits will still be there. And Kathleen, I think you are doing something that I've seen many people take advantage of or use the opportunity to do during this time, which is normally, <laughs> yes, it does not work to drive around and go to different Sunday services. Or in this case, I'm assuming some of these might be in different states, for instance, and that there is something that can be just helpful in understanding how other churches are doing things, especially for myself, I think about this stuff a lot given my job, but for other folks who are, have been going to the same church for a really long time, you might not be aware of how other people are doing things. So yeah, I, I do know a number of people who have taken advantage of this and really appreciated it. And I do wonder what that will look like, you know, if they're going to have <laughs> space for lurkers in some ways, in the same ways post-pandemic. Yeah, back about 15 years ago, we considered an article in Christianity Today about people who are bi-churchal, you know, who, who, who attend multiple churches, usually two churches. A lot of times that was driven by the parents finding a real deep connection in one church, but then their kids finding real deep connection at a youth group with another church. So the family becomes part of, uh, of two different churches. But, you know, as we were kind of researching that, we heard more people saying, yeah, that, might, that trend might be waning a little bit. And I wonder if the pandemic will reignite some of that trend where people identify with multiple congregations. Yes, good point, uh, and though in different ways. Yeah, oh, in very different ways, for sure, and for different reasons. This next letter is from Ted in Virginia. I always appreciate y'all's thoughtfulness, but in your podcast on church's response to the vaccine, I think you missed the mark while trying to have it both ways. Getting the vaccine is a concrete way to love your neighbor and your church community. Pastor Jay Kim argued that technology doesn't have an intrinsic moral value, but imagine that Medusa is a member of your church and that every person who looks into her eyes turns to stone. Would it not be a moral obligation for her to wear mirrored sunglasses in order to protect those around her from death? Or would a pastor, in deference to their sister Medusa, decree that anyone with a pre-existing condition of eyesight should simply continue to worship virtually? In this case, the technology of sunglasses and the technology of the vaccine has a clear moral implication. Discipleship toward a deeper appreciation of the scientific knowledge God has given us, rather than a wishy-washy and potentially fatal both-sidesism, is the best response. Thanks so much. Ted, I love that analogy. That's great. You make a good point. I'd be curious where that comes in. I'm happy that I, uh, I literally am running... To this podcast from getting my vaccine, so I uh, finally got my first shot today. And you All feel right, Morgan, pretty good. Yeah, oh, that's good. it's very good. Yeah, I think that <laughs> I, I I thought Ted's letter was very interesting as well, partially because of the like visceral reaction I had to 
Medusa Greenbot <laughs> into this conversation and so forth. And I think that that is actually what the conversation or what the, the fighting on that issue is, is do we believe that COVID to be Medusa or not? Right. Or when, when churches are trying to balance this type of stuff, they're trying to have to convince some people that this is Medusa. And other people are saying it's just a pet lizard or dragon <laughs> and <laughs> maybe it'll bite, but it'll be okay. Right. Right. And, and, and whereas other people are very convinced that there could be something wrong there. So yeah, to the extent that you're able to come down and convince people of that, I, you know, I, I, I thought that he had this really good line in there, discipleship towards a deeper appreciation of the scientific knowledge God has given us. That was, that was a good point too, of, of just kind of, yeah, extending discipleship in that area to understanding and caring about science. Right. And there, there will still be people who aren't able to get the vaccine. I think we're still going to have to have circumstances where pastors are going to have to deal with both of those congregations. I don't think it's going to be quite uh, you know, without going to both, both sidesism, I don't know that it's quite so morally cut and dried as having Medusa in your congregation. I appreciate the hypothetical. This is a letter from Dave Martin. He says, longtime appreciative listener to the podcast, and he is writing about an episode that we did two weeks ago. This was about the crucifixion and whether God heals. I was hoping for a more honest engagement of the issue of divine healing. I wouldn't call myself either a cessationist or a continuist, although I fully accept the biblical accounts of miracles and believe that God can heal whenever and however he chooses. I've seen very little incontrovertible evidence of actual miracles in modern times. Sure, maybe I don't get out enough, or maybe my faith is lacking. Perhaps I need to be convinced. Dr. Coe stated, just as he healed every disease and affliction during his earthly ministry, Jesus desires to heal every sickness and infirmity affecting us. I don't think that's biblical or observable. Why can't we have a conversation about the fact that God rarely, if ever, answers our prayers for supernatural physical healing? This doesn't shake my faith in him at all. He supernaturally healed my sin problem, and he will give me a new body. I wish we didn't have to pretend that God is in the business of supernatural healing today. I don't think it brings credit to our faith. It makes me feel like I'm a little bit out of my depth, nuancing this one. <laughs> because I would say that I also would not put myself in the place, at least where I've seen observable instantaneous. I don't know if there's a word for this. Apologies to folks who may know the vocabulary of this more healing in that way. I've obviously prayed for people who have been healed over time or received access to medical treatments that have healed them, but I have not seen that either. So I don't, yeah, I can't back it up with stories from my own life, but I would not mind talking about this further on a different show. I think Coe's statement went on to talk about to acknowledge that not you know that Jesus doesn't heal every every sickness and and infirmity. There's lots of reasons, and that that's not just true right now. That was, certainly was true during Jesus' earthly ministry as well. You see examples of Jesus leaving town while there's still people who are saying, "No, please stay and continue casting out demons and healing folks here in our town." I think the idea is that Jesus does have that compassion, that, that Jesus is working towards our healing. I can't tell if, if Dave here is saying that I don't think that God does physically heal us now. Man, I'll tell you, we don't have time to go into it. 
and you know these things are these things are tricky i believe that god does answer prayer in miraculous ways and there is miraculous healing so that's a conversation for another day so you don't want to say that god owes us healing or that god doesn't heal us because he desires us to suffer i think that that those are dangerous places to go please send us your thoughts questions responses so thoughtfully as so many of you do at podcast at christianitytoday.com now is the time of the show we call precious moments which is one you get to hear from all of us about something that has recently brought us joy head what is yours all right bear with me for a moment because it's going to take a second to explain i think you've heard me talk about the joys I have of this website called everynoise.com that is run by Spotify's genre. Uh, it's part of what makes you a basically. Nerd, but yes. I love, so it's like, you know, it's like some absurd number of, of genres that this guy has identified and organized all of the world's music into these different genres. It's super cool. It's got all these like side tools to it where you can get, you know, uh, each week's new releases by genre. I love that. There's so many cool things about this about this website. But he just released a new part of the website called Kaleidoscope. So that's like collide, things coming together, scope. But anyway, what that does is it takes some of those genres and it actually puts them together by kind of like meta genre. So the problem with trying to explore these genres, especially if you like put them all together, and there's a great website that's called shuffleallthesongs.com that takes Spotify and like it puts like all the music together. Wow. And that can be a little bit, you know, weird to go from like an, a weird kind of like Cuban song to like a really hard metal song to, you know, an R&B song. So what this does, it takes kind of the meta genres. So like folk or pop or rap or metal, or those kinds of things. And it gives you every day one song from, I don't know, a hundred different genres within that meta genre. And I love it. So I'm spending most of my time in folk, the folk genre, which gives you today uh, starts off with an Indian bamboo song and moves into like Uyghur folk and like Celtic harp and stuff. Very cool. Or the uh, oldies, which is like very broadly defined oldies. So it's everything from like 1920s odd, like wax recordings to like what you consider like 1950s, you know, Beach Boys stuff to classic Dutch pop. I love that. But it's not jarring. It's not as jarring to kind of stay within one of these meta genres. I bring it up on quick to listen because one of the options is... Oh my gosh, this is Newton's a precious moment. (laughs) No, the whole thing, this website is my precious moment. I just, I'm spending hours and hours a day listening to these things, but they have a Christian meta genre. That's like you, you know, I've always been interested when people talk about like how much they think Christian music, like they're like, Oh, I don't really like Christian music. I'm like, what do you mean by Christian music? There's like millions of different kinds of Christian music. And I've tried to create playlists on Spotify that demonstrate the breadth of Christian music. And this one, like, okay, he's done it better than I could. So changes every day, like the order of subgenres and like the songs in those subgenres. Because the actual list for every noise at once, literally he has identified, let me, what's the count today? He's identified 5,351 different genres of music. So there's like, you know, there's wow. a lot of different kinds of Christian. So today on the Christian Kaleidoscope, it starts with ambient worship then goes Ooh. to gospel drill, then contemporary gospel, <laughs> then Christian pop. 
Then Musicas Espiritas. So there's like music from all around the world. It's a Christian thrash metal. It's like Trap Cristiano. So like Spanish Christian trap, Haitian gospel music, old time Baptist gospel. It's awesome. Now, some of the music, granted, is not very good. I, you know, like it's, it's about diversity more than necessarily the best. But I have found so many kinds of music that I didn't know about and so many kinds of music that I didn't know about that I really, really love. Like Christian Afrobeat is so good. I'm listening to a lot of it. And it's there's some really great stuff in there. Gospel blues, one of my favorite genres. And it's nice to see that Spotify has a whole area to explore. Old time gospel blues. Link will be in the show notes. Yeah, but if you go to everynoise.com, you can find it. I'm on uh, Twitter at Ted Olson. No, but can they follow you on Spotify too? Because maybe they wouldn't want to do that. Oh, yeah, they can follow me on Spotify. I think it's Olson.ted is my Spotify account. Morgan, what's your precious moment for the week? I'm going to talk about some books that I've been reading. So first of all, I just have a library update, which is that, yeah, last year in Chicago, they eliminated library fines, which is awesome. (laughs) Yes. Finally, only gave $200 to the library in five years. And then I moved to a place that still has library fines. Very demoralizing. And I just want to say some funny things that have happened to me at the library. Number one is that when I went a couple weeks ago, I had like gone to like Time's Best Books of 2019 and I put a bunch on hold. And I put so many, they didn't all fit in my backpack. As everyone knows, I have a bike, right? Not a car. So that was an issue. So the guy was like, oh, you can come pick up your books later. And I forgot to pick them up. Slash library is not open a ton at convenient times. So I didn't pick up three books that were on hold, and then I got charged a dollar for each one I didn't pick up. But thought it was nice the guy knew that I picked them up later. Oh, However, man. he kind of redeemed himself, slash library kind of redeemed himself, because I went to the library to pick up more books on hold this past week, and they, I didn't have my library card with me because another annoying thing, I don't know why they don't do this, they don't have the keychain library card here. So I don't like think of bringing it all the time. Anyway, he let me check him out with my photo ID. I appreciate it. That's a little library update, but I have been reading. I just read another Colson Whitehead book. I'm pretty sure this was a precious moment of mine last year. And I wanted to give people an update that Nickel Boys is a very outstanding book. Also, it's horrible to read and just, yeah, the depths of human cruelty are exposed in this book. But with Colson Whitehead's gorgeous writing, I highly recommend it. And I, I don't know, Ted, if I told you this, but I have realized that I like reading books that I like to read and I don't like reading <laughs> books that I don't like to read, as opposed to the, like thinking of myself as someone who likes reading or doesn't like reading. It's more just like, depends on the book. We were talking about Slack channels. There's also a book Slack channel, and I was looking at what people had recommended recently. And one of our coworkers, Kelly Trujillo, had recommended this book called Moonflower Murders. Turns out it's a mystery within a mystery, aka at some point in the book, it turns into another book. And (laughs) (laughs) that is what I'm in the middle of right now. So I'm in the middle of reading two mysteries at the same time that are connected to each other. Oh, that's fun. It's great. I am reading those things. I recommend both of them. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Mark, do you have anything that you could share? After several months of not being able to be face-to-face at our church, we were actually able to go to our church on Easter and just be able to 
connect with some friends that we, of course, do our chat boxes with and we <laughs> see online. It was really special to be able to bump elbows and connect with people that we hadn't seen in a while. And that was really, really special. Yeah. And probably just like, wow, it, it, it brings a new element to how you understand Easter too, huh? That's right. Mark, remind people where they can find you outside of here. I run the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute, and people could contact me there at sgi at wheaton.edu. would be happy to You also check out our website at wheaton.edu backslash sgi. And we're an institute that conducts original research on people's experiences navigating things like sexual or gender identity and Christian faith, and then try to be a resource to Christian communities that are navigating these complex issues. And your books, once again, are Understanding Gender Dysphoria, and then the most recent one is Emerging Gender Identity. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. The podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is provided by Sweeps, and the transcript is done by Boone Yashola and Yvonne Sue. Again, send us your letters. We are podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are on Twitter at CT Podcast and rating and reviewing the show is great for helping people find us. So go to Apple Podcasts to do that. See you all next week. Bye.